Get autographed copies of New York Times bestselling author Cynthia Bryan's books at www.starstyleradio.com. Get inspired and motivated to be your best self with Be The Star You Are, 99 Gifts, and Be The Star You Are for Teens. Buy cases at a deep discount to give away as gifts and premiums. Visit www.starstyleradio.com or call 925-377-STAR. 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 Do you have a plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our healthy living coaches, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, as they engage in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovation, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your business and personal navigational skills for ultimate achievement. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, welcome, Power Partners, to our informational playground. This is our program, Star Style. Be the star you are. We are brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are charity. And I'm your host, Cynthia Bryan. And with me is... And I'm Heather Brittany. All right, and we're coming to you on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel, where we strive to seed, stimulate, and support space for positive, meaningful conversations. The only way to know what you want and to be what you want is to be yourself. So we want you to know yourself and to reach for, exactly, to reach for the stars and, of course, land on them. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity, a top nonprofit rated by a great nonprofits and GuideStar. For more information, visit BeTheStarYouAre.org or you can go to BTSYA.org. And I love this quote. It's from Winston Churchill. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we are spirits. Not animals. And that's going to be kind of our quote for all of our segments today. We have a really informative, historically relevant, and very helpful, healthy show for you today. In our second segment, we were going to be interviewing author Miriam Heron with her two award-winning books, Absolution and A Stone for Bread. And I'm very excited about interviewing Miriam for both of these books because one is based on Vietnam and the other one has to do with the Holocaust and the Nazis and, and the interaction between humans and how we can treat one another worse than animals would treat each other. We're also going to touch upon our skin cancer because no one's immune and no matter how dark your skin color, we want you to have just a quick refresher course on how to protect your largest organ. But coming right up, where you want to talk about something fun, the healing power of pooches and pets. Because medical research indicates that our furry friends may be our doctor's best friends 
too. And Heather Brittany is here with us with Health Matters to talk about some of the scientific news about it. And she has actually firsthand knowledge with her Dr. Dulce dog. <laughs> so, <laughs> Heather, I know yeah, that, well, that you've as been you know, sick. there's no denying um, that dogs have a killer sense of smell. And they actually have um, their sense of smell is about a hundred thousand times more sensitive than ours and dogs are capable of smelling everything from drugs to electricity underground um, such as gas pipes even um, ovulation of other animals and we always know when you take when you take your dog out for a walk and you'll see how they kind of they sniff around and they'll find that perfect spot that they need to pee on well actually um, when they smell other urine it's almost sort of like reading the newspaper of what's going on in the neighborhood but they can smell the health of other dogs. And it's interesting, if next time you take your dog out for a walk, watch the facial expressions as your dog smells things, how certain things will get them really excited and other things they'll have this, Ugh, no thank you kind of smell. And that's because they're able to smell what's going on in these other animals. Well, and, you know, just to jump in there, I always, it's always like disconcerting when you go visit somebody and I love animals. And the first thing the dog does is puts, puts his or her snout right between your crotch. And it's like, uh-oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I, you know that's how that's how some of us say hello, I guess. Um, and you know, we've always yeah, known for a, a long hello. time the the therapeutic things for dogs. That uh, I've always, you know, felt that just in general, you know, dogs are dogs as you know they've got the nickname man's best friend. That throughout history they've been part of our lives and and loved and and all throughout the country. You know, throughout the world, that this has been sort of our partner in crime. That we've trained these dogs, these creatures, over time uh, because they seem so similar with us. That they're so their love is so unconditional, but they're also so smart. And various breeds, as we've discovered over time, um, have certain you know certain strengths than other certain breeds. And you know, we've known for such a long time. I feel that you know whether your dog truly is a registered uh, therapy dog. I think dogs are therapeutic. All animals are, but especially uh, dogs, because there is that uh, sense that they're just so loving, and all they want is is love back. Um, that you feel, you know, that uh, you know support and, and love by it. I know times when I've been really sad. I, I feel like we called my dog. Her name's Dulce, of course, Doctor Dulce. That um, I feel when there's times I've been sad that you know she she just senses that that she'll come and she just seems extra loving or nourishing and uh, or times that I've been really sick and she's come and laid next to me and bet there's just something I feel that they're there to want to show their support and even if they can't uh, you know physically you know uh, cure us there's something that feels really healing about that kind of love about just. Um, just to be cared for. But actually, we can kind of put our dogs to work now. But now we know that, and actually one of the biggest fraudulent things in the country now, too, is that you can buy uh, online these, you know, the jackets and stuff so that you can have a, a quote-unquote uh, a dog or therapy dog. But the ones that are legit, oh. these dogs <laughs> go through a lot of training, and it goes beyond just emotional support. And things they found if, with uh, certain particular breeds is that they can do seizure dogs. So what that means is seizure dogs is they response, excuse me, response dogs, um, they can offer support and companionship for people who suffer with reoccurring seizures. And though there is actually no conclusive evidence 
that says um, that as of right now that they are able to predict when a seizure is, um, but they may be able to train uh, train them when they see certain behaviors. So as you know, dogs learn. You know, teaching old dog new tricks, they learn um, behaviors, and over time that becomes a trait, something that they they respond to. So dogs it can start to pick up with um, if there's certain things your your blood pressure, certain signs uh, that you might have before you're having a seizure. Maybe your slurred speech or the way you walk, or or even um, dogs because of that amazing uh, sense of smell that they can pick up, and the the smells in your saliva will change when certain things in your adrenal glands and when your heart rate just you know when we're nervous and our mouth gets dry and we think uh, how we. It smells we can't pick up. We can't pick up on all those pheromones and all those things, but dogs can. So over time, they'll be able to sense, have that recognition of, okay, when she's had a seizure, this this was her particular smell. So they can alert, um, you know, alert their owners. And also is something not even to think of uh, is they may be able to be almost that break for you, something to break your fall. If uh, someone, as you know, that when you're when someone's having a seizure, they really have no control over the, the spasms going on within their body. So the dogs can be sort of alert of knowing what's going to happen and kind of create those barriers or safe zones uh, for their owners. Also, another thing, just as well, I said, Heather, before dogs, you go on, do they train the dogs for this? I mean, is there a special, you know, just like you go to obedience school with your dog, do you, are there certain breeds of dogs that are trained to uh, be able to identify a stroke victim or, you know, high blood pressure or diabetes? All kinds of dogs have been, there's been, uh, beagles have been uh, used in these studies, labs, uh, oh God, German shepherds, uh, oh God, what's the Mountie dogs, um, St. Bernard's. Um, I want to say all, I would love to think that my little, you know, three pound chihuahua would be able, but um, alert-wise, I think she, partic- she might be able to alert me um, if I was having that. If over time, if she was kind of picked up on that, there are definitely things. Um, yeah, it would be amazing, you know, just right off the bat if your dog could do it. But um, oh yeah, these dogs definitely you go through trainings and you can you know with meet with doc. This is something that is actually recognized now in medicine, and especially um, with within our country with kids that kids are having. You know, maybe it's that you know we're exposed to more things as it goes on, or maybe we're just more aware of uh, certain uh, allergies and certain illnesses that uh, we're we're needing, we're recognizing at a younger age that now uh, we want kids to have treatment and help for that. Um, Yes, you can have have your dog go through these training programs and doctors. There's there's particular programs that will set you up with dogs. And there's actually um, a website. If you go to Pen Vet, and that's P E N N Vet V E T W D C dot org, um, that's the help funding for these dogs that are specially trained dogs. Sort of like you know, seeing eye dogs. As we know, that's been for a long time that these dogs are trained um, to help the blind, to help us. So the same thing as they go through this rigorous training so that these dogs are conditioned to know what are the signs. And then before they're put into their homes, um, they're helped to be trained with what uh, their owner's particular needs are, knowing their owner's particular sense. What happens after that, you know, I haven't seen firsthand, so I can't say beyond that. Um, But also, as I was just kind of touching on for a moment, um, that animals, or excuse me, dogs 
can smell uh, when other animals are ovulating. And that goes for all those primal kind of things. And as we say, you know, people, we let certain smells out of our bodies that pheromone, things that we can't, we are, we are nose blind to, but dogs are not. And there's been new studies in, uh, in 2012, so I guess not that, that new. Um, there was a German uh, study that found actually that these dogs can um, help uh, smell out uterine cancer. And why that's so um, amazing is because that's one of those things that we've said before is a silent killer. There's oftentimes uh, yeah, very rare You don't symptoms. even know that you have it. There's no pain. Yeah, and a lot of times it's one of those things that symptoms are mild and they, they mask other things, cramping or upset stomach. A lot of times uh, when women are actually uh, experiencing going through the stages of ovarian cancer, uh, it can be misdiagnosed as something um, uh gastric-wise, because there tends to be a lot of pain in the abdomen um, and not exactly in the general region until, uh, for, and there's a lot, there really is, isn't, as of right now, um, conclusive tests that we can do. So it's all about preventative care, catching it early. And what they discovered is that these dogs could smell just a single um, drop of blood within this urine, if you, that they can, that these urine drops, or excuse me, these blood drops were the cancer um, were all the, the test positive cancer cells. So um, what they discovered now is having dogs smell these urine and these blood samples uh, that they've been able to detect it. So again, I always think, you know, working with doctors and stuff is, is amazing um, and always you should consult your doctor. And again, you're not doing these studies on your own. This is going in with this training. Well, um, I have a question. If someone is like, um, is, is possibly has been diagnosed or has, has had a stroke and they've been diagnosed that they may have another stroke, is there a place that you go to to see if you can get a dog like this that would, you know, that would be able to identify you know, another stroke? If you know that information, that's beyond me. I'm sure if um, if you're someone who's had a stroke, if, are you talking about strokes or seizure, seizures? Well, either. I mean, whatever. Either a stroke or a seizure. Obviously, animals can be trained to, to know that when something's coming on. So I would yeah, think that if somebody um, had epilepsy, so that would, would, would also know, be I, helpful. I don't know the conclusive evidence regarding strokes, but um, regarding seizures... Uh, I, I think, especially if anyone, if you have had any of these things, a stroke or seizure in your life, uh, hopefully you are taking measures after that and, and uh, receiving the proper care and seeing specialists. So I think this would be something to discuss with them um, if they haven't brought forward to you uh, prior as well. It works well, especially with people, you know, sometimes a little bit older or needing just that secondary thing. I mean, we know there's been cases, you know, where dogs, you know, barking, you know, to help if someone's had a heart attack. If, if not that, um, you know, if, if the dog isn't strong enough, you know, to carry someone to safety, that they can at least be that alarm that someone else is hearing, God, why is this dog barking so much? Um, you know, we hear of things in dogs helping out in other ways like that. And, and now they even have, I think, which is a great thing with, for kids that as we've shown, um, more and more, just as there's so many toxins that uh, we are exposed to every single day. I mean, even within you know our lotions, our deodorants, uh, it's our bodies are are being changing. Our molecular um, system is changing, and thus that's getting passed on genetically through our children and and uh, of all the different foods and things. And we talked talked before about. Uh, GMOs, those genetically engineered, uh, modified uh, 
foods. Um, but there tends to be a lot more allergies these days. And peanut allergies, was, uh, or just nut allergies overall, have been in the news a lot. And they actually have dogs now that, um, you know, you can team up. This isn't, I, I think you need to go to these places, especially if you have a child that's been diagnosed with um, uh, particular life-threatening allergies, especially to nuts. And these dogs can come into the school with the kid and smell that they have such that, again, 100,000 times uh, better smell than us, that they can smell if surfaces have had peanuts. I mean, it's, it's the same sort of training technology that goes for bomb-sniffing dogs, drug-sniffing dogs. We put our dogs to work, for sure. Uh, that's it. Um, you know that, and that's really, really amazing. And it's so incredible that the dogs are able to do this. You know, I've often wondered about on airplanes where they serve peanuts. Um, if people just know that if they have a peanut allergy, they shouldn't just fly on those airlines or... Well, you know, I mean, no, what I don't know if that's something I know that's different than talking about the dogs, I've but it, when you said that about they could sniff peanuts, yeah, I've been on a flight once before where they said, and, and now, and sometimes on, on, oh god, I said more and more on flights, you don't really get anything in any days, but on Southwest, for example, you know, they still you still get your free soda, and right? And you get peanuts, um, but a lot of them also now started doing pretzels or like the cheese it things, and I have been on a flight before where they said they were not serving any peanuts because uh, there was a known drug, al- uh, a known allergy of a um, passenger with on. So I don't know that's if that's something that has to be discussed before. And some people um, are highly allergic that, you know, they can't be in a room, they can't touch a surface. That it's right, anything, and that's you know, what I meant touch. is that if it's been on a plane so before, I, you, you know, know would I, a dog go through and say, oh, it's still on the surface. But, you know, we, oh, we're running out of time because our guests will be on soon. But I had one other question, and that is, I know that we've been talking about dogs and Dr. Dogs, but there are other animals that can also be trained as kind of our health partners, right? I mean, I've heard of cats being able to do it. Have you, do you know information on that? Uh, I did. I was, my focus today was all about dogs. So if, you know, I would think two birds would be something to that you could train, uh, birds that, especially ones that talk, um, sort of alert things. But as you know, I forget what, what aunt you had, uh, that had the bird that would, that would kind of say naughty words to people. <laughs> it was um, my grandmother. <laughs> It was my grandmother's uh, bird. She had a parrot and, and a cockatiel, and the cockatiel would sing the Yellow Rose of Texas, but it would also say, you know, uh, what you doing, what you doing, and it didn't say any bad words, but it would, I it it would, would be like, say things at the wrong, the wrong moment, <laughs> you know, and it was kind of a, it was a very cute thing. Well, I love it that our, you know, man's best friend, it really, really is a, a doctor to all of us, and so for anyone who does have a dog, who is lucky enough to have a dog, is that we can be more grateful to them for not only their companionship and their loyalty and their unconditional love, but also that they really can help us um, get well and help us with our healing. So wrap it up for us, if you yeah, would, Heather. Yeah, definitely. I would believe, too, that there was there would probably be things in relation to uh, pigs, because pigs, as we know, are very close in smart-wise that they've been said to be, if 
as smart or maybe even smarter um, than dogs in certain things. I won't go and get into that debate. Um, but dogs can also be used as something, too, for diabetic reasons. They may not be able to alert you, um, you know, when, if someone, you know, to take your medicine, but they, again, these certain these smells, they may become accustomed to your certain reactions when they, when you have low or high blood, um, uh, sugar levels, um, or if you're about to have some kind of diabetic shock, um, that they can also stay with you and give you that kind of nurturing care um, until you're feeling better. So to check out more information on the show, on the radio, on the charity, we want you to go to bethestarur.org as well as starstyleradio.com. Excellent. Well, I love this. I hope that everybody will pay more attention to their doctor dogs. When we come back from break, Miriam Heron, a best-selling and award-winning author, will be with us to talk about her two books, Absolution and A Stone for Bread, that deal with topics that I think are dear to my heart, but we'll be dealing with issues from the Vietnam War as well as the Holocaust. So don't go away. Much more to come. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And you're listening to us on the Voice America Network. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Stay right with us. We'll be right back. Be the star you are. The star you us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business. Well, thank you so much for staying with us here on our power party here on Star Style Be the Star You Are. I am Cynthia Bryan, and I am so delighted to be able to bring to you the pioneers on the planet, the people that really are making a difference, who are writers and givers of their soul, bringing us words that will make us think. Today, we're going to be speaking with award winning author Miriam Heron about 
two of her books. She was on the editorial staff of Good Housekeeping Magazine as well as the Winston-Salem Journal. She's been a freelance writer, an editor, public relations consultant, and actually a producer of films and videos for nonprofit organizations as well. The two books are called Absolution and A Stone for Bread. I just want to welcome Miriam to the show. Welcome to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, Miriam. Thank you, Cynthia. This is a real pleasure and a privilege for me to be here with all the work you do in literacy around the world, and thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much. It's it's my, my pleasure. We're all volunteers at Be The Star You Are, and we really, really believe that if we can get good uh, books out there and get people reading more, people are going to you know grow as people and grow as individuals, and there's just so much about a book. We get lost in it, and we can learn so much history, and we, you know, we can learn more about ourselves. But we're going to talk about both of your books today. And the first one that I wanted to uh, deal with is Absolution. This actually won a Novello Press Literary Award in 2007, and it also received the Independent Publishers Gold Award for Best Fiction. Uh, in the Southeast region, and it was a finalist in Forward Magazine's Novel of the Year, which is really, really impressive. And, of course, uh, we'll get to Stone, A Stone for Bread a little bit later, which was a top ten finalist in the 2014 Faulkner Wisdom Novel Competition and was a featured Kirkus Review in March of this year. So kudos to you. I, we really want people to be reading these books. So... We uh, when we were talking about Absolution, Publishers Weekly actually called it quite an impressive debut, and it's the story of um, Maggie Delaney, who is an idealistic wife and mom, but her whole world falls apart when her husband is murdered. Which and it seems like a random act, but the reality is is that a lot of it goes back to the jungles of Southeast Asia. And she uncovers this whole slew of secrets, um, which she had been married to the man for 40 years and never knew uh, what happened. Now, you worked with uh, children and teens from Southeast Asia who came over from Cambodia and other places. And I, in reading your book, I know that you were influenced about this. So tell us how Absolution came about because you've done a lot of charity work in your life and a lot of volunteering to help this world be a better place. So how did Absolution, you know, kind of start gelling in your head? Well, you know, books are very strange, particularly fiction books. And I... You know, I was thinking I wanted to write something that sort of tracked the years of my life because I came through the 60s, and, uh, you know, I had experiences with some of that when I was in grad school and all of that. So I kept thinking, you know, I if I do something about that, but I I, I never, when I realized if I'm going to deal with a, that era, I've got to deal with Vietnam. And I was working with some... Refugee kids, they were families that came over after the Cambodian Holocaust, which was an outburst from the Vietnam War. So I, I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to deal with Vietnam. I really didn't want to deal with Vietnam because, you know, that's a real historical epic and that, you know, I knew I couldn't go there. 
But well, uh, and it's a painful, painful memory. I mean, as we had corresponded, you know, both of us had had friends in Vietnam. I mean, I had people, some of my dearest friends, killed in Vietnam. I mean, it brings up, it opens wounds. Yes, and it, it's you know, with these young people, it, it's been a wound with, particularly with their families. Most of them were like babies when they came over. So, with their families, it's been a real wound. So. I really did feel like I had to go there, and I somehow had to touch base with those kids that I was working with. But it's not about those kids, actually. It's about, you know, a a story takes on its own life. It's about the characters that somehow come alive in your mind as you're writing. And I think most fiction writers have a hard time explaining how that just happens. But that's where it began. And I used, I chose Boston because my daughter was living there at the time. You know, that's sort of part of it, too. I'd never lived in Boston, but I was back and forth for a while. So I, I chose to set it there and also into near Charlotte because I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. So those were mainly the places, and I had lived in New York. In fact, that squalid apartment that is shown in the novel, I lived in it. Back when Is I that was... right? Oh, that's interesting. You know, that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating little tidbit because I was wondering with Maggie, who you know, what you start off the book, and she sounds like she's just you know a lovely wife and mother, but then we get to know her and realize that she was an activist and an anti-war activist, and very, you know, very, very involved in in the whole Vietnam or anti-Vietnam episode. Was that you in your youth? Well, I mean, I, you know, I was in grad school during the Vietnam War, and I had students coming and going. Uh, you know, one student I really remember was had been a medic in, in Vietnam, and he came to my office one day, and he was kind of bragging about all he had done, and yet the whole time he sat there, his hands were shaking. And I think those students, and I had students who were trying to keep out of the draft and, and not go, and... So I think all of that, you know, and I knew people in the anti-war movement, and I knew people who were in the military, and uh, sort of a very mixed kind of thing, and I sort of tried to present a lot of the sides of that in the story. And and so tell us about your characters. Are they based on a compendium of people? Were they based on people you know, you know, in one, maybe a student or something that you knew? I mean, just like you said that the apartment was your apartment, you know. That, that uh, was my apartment. Yeah. You know? that's, and uh, the other thing, my daughter lived in Back Bay. Now, Back Bay is a very posh neighborhood, but she lived on the one apartment on that street that was not posh. In fact, they tried to kind of take the kitchen out one time and say, this is just a rooming house. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, but no, my characters, you know, I don't really do much that's autobiographical, but I learn from people I know, and I get a sense of other people, and I hear stories that people tell, and sometimes pieces of that or even snatches of conversation get kind of put into a novel. So tell us about the events that happened at Eighth Cat in Vietnam, because this is something that Maggie doesn't learn about her husband, Richard, you know, who is successful, a successful, a successful attorney. Um, and this, there's the Billy um, Nugent, the whole Stearns drugstore 
tell us about what transpired in Vietnam and what was the the huge secret and how that p you know the post traumatic stress syndrome how it really affects people for their entire lives. Well, you know, I've, one of the things I have learned talking with some veterans, and I did have veteran help me a lot with this, who had been in Vietnam, is that that. that People who return from war have a hard time talking to people about it, even to yes. their wives. They just really can't. So, um, you know, what, what Richard, so Richard's experiences in Vietnam, he can never, he's never really told Maggie about, and she knows he was there. And, in fact, I mean, it was a sort of strange marriage that kind of worked out that he, she was an anti-war protester, he was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and, you know, he, he was her at- public attorney when she was arrested in a thing, and he didn't like her, and she didn't like him, but you know how those things have a way. Well, and so that's where I really Vietnam, liked that. I liked that attraction part. I liked the fact that the two characters were so completely different from each other in their viewpoints, yet their marriage worked. Yes. It did work. It, it it finally it did, but he still never talked to her about these things, which was typical. And you know, he he got himself into a situation that where things went very wrong. And uh, so I, I won't tell you exactly how they went wrong, but they were with his unit, and you know, they were they were under tremendous stress. They were under. Attacked, they lost people in their outfit from uh, one of their helicopters being blown up. So, and all, and, and he fell in love with a young woman over there, a Vietnamese woman, and that was sort of where he got into trouble. Right, and, uh, right. And that, to me, those are just incredibly powerful scenes. Well, I know that you said that you would be kind enough to read a passage from Absolution, and I always think there's nothing better than having a novelist read something of their own work. So if you wouldn't mind, I would love to you to read any of your compelling passages. Oh, well, let me, I will not go to war on this passage. I will read, you know, after Richard is killed in the drugstore by, you know, what seems to just be a kind of walking in at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, his death, that's pretty traumatic for Maggie, his wife. About a year after it, though, as she's trying to recover, she goes home to North Carolina, where she came from. She was a farm girl, and... She's gone out to her house a couple of times, and she went out and saw a picture on the wall when she was that she loved as a child of a kind of English country garden, this placid scene. And she's going to take it home with her, but she realizes that she's gone off, and then she forgot to bring it. So she's going to go back there and try to and get that, pick it up from the house. So I will read from that. And that sounds great. All right, let's see. Um, She remembered she'd left the English cottage print at the farmhouse. She still had Sonny's keys, so she drove there now, parking at the porch steps. She did not bother to cut on the inside light, but slipped through the shadows, shadowy living room to the stairs, finding the print where she had left it. She straightened the muslin covering and carried it into the living room, pausing there. I won't be here again, she thought. They're going to sell the house. So wondering what, the, what that meant for her. She felt no echo of ache or loss. She went onto the porch, looking, 
locking the door behind her. At the railing, she looked on across the yard to the tall oaks by the barn. An old memory swam into her mind. She was 14, sitting on the top step of the porch, shelling beans when her cousin Eddie McCaslin rode into the yard on a large black horse she had never seen before. Hey, Magpie, Eddie called. Where's your daddy? In the barn. Eddie slid off the horse and wrapped the reins around the trunk of the dogwood beside the porch. Pretty horse, Maggie said. Yeah, Shadow's a butte. Can I ride him? Hell no, girl, that's a man's horse. He'll throw you into little pieces. I can ride him. That's what you think. That's what I know. You know, huh? You've always been too big for your britches, Magpie. Come on, let me ride him. And he gets you killed? Your mama's going to take my head off. Eddie walked off to the barn. Maggie hopped from the steps and undid Shadow's reins, slipping into the big western saddle. She kicked the horse gently. He reared slightly, sashaying from side to side with the strange rider on his back, then moved into an easy trot across the yard. So there, she thought, and kicked him again. Shadow bolted, taking off across the garden and onto a dirt road through the fields. Maggie lost one rein and grabbed the saddle horn to keep from flying off. Terrified, she held on as the horse plunged down the road, streaking for home, and, her mind, and in her mind she saw herself rising high in the air, thrown into little pieces. She clung to the saddle horn, burying her head in Shadow's neck. When she did not fly off, she raised up to see cotton fields whizzing by. The slap of her butt against the saddle relaxed into Shadow's even gait. As the big horse moved beneath her, she moved with him, her legs gripping his sides. She laughed terror turning to thrill as she felt herself join with the horse. The pounding hooves, the wind blowing, her eyes teary, her hair straight out behind. She leaned over the horse's shoulder and caught the loose rein in her hand, then raced Shadow to the end of the road of the highway. At last winded, she responded to her hug on a tug on the, he responded to a tug on the reins, stopped, curving his neck downwards to chomp a tuft of grass by the roadside. Turned Shadow about and trotted him into the house. Eddie was standing in the yard, arms akimbo, hands on his hip. So you're not so you're a horse thief too, eh, Magpie? Nope, she said, sliding off Shadow and handing the reins to Eddie. Just borrowed him. Okay. I followed that up. That's sort of she remembers that because Eddie went off to Vietnam and lost his right hand in the war. And she talks about how when he came home, he was so bitter. He sold the horse. In fact, he said he would. You know, he, he would have shot. The he was horse. going to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, it's sort of like she talks about how war wounds and and maybe war wounds affect us so deeply, and that's sort of why. I, I I really love that that entire scene because my horse was named Shadow too. <laughs> Oh no! Yes, yes. And so when I was reading reading this about Shadow, I could just feel Maggie on Shadow, you know, just zooming by and her hair flying. And I mean, because that exhilaration of it. But the whole idea of what you said is uh, when he said that he almost shot the horse when he came home because it just reminded him of so much. It really was a telltale sign of what happens in war and the devastation that it does to the psyche of war. And yeah. this is what I found, too, with absolution, um, and we won't give anything away be, of why your title is absolution, but, you know, it just, you have a lot of twists and turns throughout the entire book 
of uh, running into people from the past. Uh, for example, Everett Quincy from her activist days becomes the attorney for Billy and just, you know, a lot of things that are being brought up. But what I found is with your second book, A Stone for Bread, which you actually had written, what, several years ago, 20 years or more ago. Was that well before I wrote Absolution, yes. Yes, yes. And the same thing, you know, with the whole idea of, of war, the cruelty, the, the horrific things that humans do to one another, I found that there was a, a thread that tied the two books together. On that, because Vietnam was such, and Cambodia, that whole experience was such a horrific, horrific time, which um, men today are still, you know, reeling over. And then the whole Nazi occupation and what went on, and how they were, how people were in the concentration camps, and the survivors that are still alive today, what they went through was. Um, just reminded me so much of the same thing that Richard had gone through. Did you did you feel the same kind of relationship? Well, you know, I wrote these books for two different reasons. And uh, the one I wrote, A Stone for Bread in Desperation, I had written two books. One of my, I found an agent in New York, liked both of my books and was still trying to market them, but not with much luck. And so I had to write something in desperation, and I'd been writing a long medieval novel set in France, which actually my agent wants to see again, and I've been working on. And um, well, great, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was, you know, so frustrated that I couldn't get published because it came close to getting my first novel published, and so I said, I'm going to write something that's like a mystery or something, and so I thought it'd be about a writer and a lost manuscript, and then I thought. Well, I've been dealing with France. Let's set it in France. And sort of one thing led to another, and it really didn't turn out to be that kind of... It, it is about a manuscript saved from the Holocaust of poems, whether they're real or not. We're, we're not sure. It's the main character is a man named Henry Beam, who's a poet who's disgraced, who brought them back from his year in Paris when he was just out of college back in the... 50, the six, and back in the 1950s, and, you know, people think he maybe forged the poem, so that's sort of the mystery, but, uh, you know, it, it turned serious, the book turned serious when I just sort of had this image of a little boy who's four years old, who mm. does a terrible thing, uh, but okay. he doesn't know it because he's four years old when he's, right. he's in France in the, during World War One, and, and he buries the grenade. Rene, that's Rene. Rene buried the grenade in his garden. Yes. Yes, and his brother cuts his hoe into it, and it is killed. And, you know, he's four years old, but this haunts him his whole life. And um, as, as, as he's worked through, and Henry, Henry's telling his story about finding these poems and about Rene. He's telling them to a young woman named Rachel, who's a, a grad student and of Chapel Hill here, and she's not sure what to believe and whether he's making some of this up. But uh, we get sort of Henry's story of being a sharecropper's son and ending up going to college and being a poet, sort of, but then being disgraced by this whole controversy over these poems. So, but that's sort of, you know, when I, I had that image of the little boy 
And I, I realized I kind of took that from my life. I didn't remember that I did then. When I was four years old, I was living on an army post, and we would find bullet casings in the in the woods from maneuvers and soldiers. So that's sort of life from life. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, I mean, it was it's so plausible because obviously they're still finding. Um, you know, ammunition in forests and in, on beaches and in different places that is buried that is dangerous. And so, very, I mean, it was so plausible. True. And, of course, when you're four, yes, you're going to find something and you're going to bury it, you know. I mean, you just, it's, it's something that you do. But this haunted Renee and uh, your characters, though, when you got to the concentration camp and to Mauthausen and, 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 and Renee's whole life, the way he was, uh, that to me just brought back such images. Um, I, you know, I know I studied in France. I'm I'm really a Francophile. I really love. Oh my! No, yeah. I just love it. I was at the University of Bordeaux, and part of what my studies were is I spent um, six weeks behind uh, at that time the Iron Curtain, and we went to Auschwitz, and wow. um, and it was it was just one of the most sobering, sad. Horrific experiences because, and you you brought all of that to life in a stone for bread. And for those of you just joining us, we are speaking with Miriam Heron. She's the author of Absolution and a Stone for Bread. And her website is miriamherron.com. It's M-I-R-I-A-M-H-E-R-I-N. Um, I just, I, I just, I still cannot even ponder how one human being can t- can treat another human being like you know like this like the way that they did and then the the capos i mean even the people who became prisoners they would turn on the other prisoners and it was just a, a, just a terrible time did you do a lot of research on it or talk to survivors because i found that renee's the poems that he saved that were possibly from this character um, this other character that that it was again so plausible because since you weren't allowed to have pencil and paper and reading materials and you were you were just treated so horribly that you would have to try to keep things in your head. Yeah, I I did a lot of research. <laughs> no, you know, and when I wrote it, it I didn't have the internet. Uh, I wrote that a while, you know twenty something twenty years ago. ago yes, so. My my librarians were wonderful, so but I did do a, a lot of research, and uh, so that's that's a lot of it. And that and some of those incidents at the Mauthausen concentration camp are real ones. Uh, I pulled those out of some of the stories that were told, like the boy on the rock singing oh. on the pile of rocks. Now, that's see, I just get chills when you say. I mean, I can just imagine this beautiful voice singing, and all of the prisoners and the and the people that are in the stone quarry you know that are at least given a little bit of joy for a moment and then he he's blown up and and it's done on purpose he's killed on purpose just to torture everyone besides kill the little boy now was um marcotte was that a real character or based on a real character i sort of there was a um um you know, uh, a kind of fiery politician in France at the time, uh, and uh, so I that I sort of took the idea from that. Uh, who was a you know right wing, but Mark 
Akat's his own person. <laughs> so um, just that he is sort of, you know, and w- the background that sh- shows up that we don't know about. when. Uh, that's it. Exactly. And that's what, you know, that's what I, it, it frightens me, like with uh, elections that are happening here in America now or all the things that are happening across the world is we as individuals, we really never know what's behind the curtain. I mean, is it the wizard or, you know, is it, <laughs> is right. it we just, don't. And, we uh, don't know. We don't yeah. know. It's, it's very true. And uh, people are not always who they seem. And uh, Marcotte is one of those that is not who he seems to be, even the kind of buffoon and clownish politician. So yeah. um, that's, that's where he came from. So that was sort of based on some, you know, the politics in France post-war, World War II, were very, very chaotic for a while until de Gaulle came, came to power when he kind of right. settled things down. And this is set in that period. Right, right. Well, you know, and it's uh, interesting. You have a, a, a line in there about how in France uh, post-war, after the Americans had you know, rescued or come in as the heroes that everybody in France wanted to say they were part of the resistance. But the reality was, is that wasn't the truth. Is that it wasn't the case. Is that when the Nazis came in, most of the French welcomed them with open arms. Exactly. Or the ones that didn't said, well, I guess we have to accept them. Right. And uh, feeling like they were powerless, I guess, and that, well, you know, they probably were in some ways. But, yes, it, it, it was not like you know, and the ones who were often in the resistance were the communists, and they were a political party at the time, but, you know, that was not seen as, as too great either. So, but, Well, and, uh, we, and we know from history what Stalin was like, so... Yeah, yes, we do. And that, <laughs> we and know that, from history that, that how he became... Well, Miriam, these are just two really amazing books... Absolution and a Stone for Bread. Um, I'm just wondering before that we have to leave. Do you would you like to read a short passage from A Stone for Bread? We I only have a few minutes left. Opening passage, which is very short. Yes, I that would be fantastic because that's a that's um, it's very heartfelt. So this is a Stone for Bread, and Miriam Huron is reading the opening passage. René was four years old when he buried a grenade in the garden behind his house. It was summer of 1917, and there was war in France. Months before, soldiers had bivouacked in the village. When they moved on, René's father went on to join the fighting farther north. The boy's grandparents spoke in hushed tones about Les Bouches and guns with names, Big Bertha and Albrecht, and one called the Distant Princess. René heard the booms from his bedroom window. He watched the sky flare with light. One morning, a line of French soldiers passed through the village. That afternoon, his grandfather buried a tin box in a corner of the barn. The box held coins, a silver vanity set, two gold watches, a jeweled brooch belonging to a grandmother generations back, medals won by his great-uncle Albert in the war with Prussia. René held the small box while his grandfather dug. He watched him place the box in the hole, tamp down the dirt, and cover it with straw and hay bales. The next day, René buried his treasures, bits of metal and colored rock scavenged from the woods. His 12-year-old brother, Etan, found them in the garden a week later when his hoe sliced into the grenade. 
Natan's arms were blown from his body, and he bled to death quickly. Of course it was an accident. The notary who who investigated sadly shook his head and reminded the family it was wartime. A dog could have brought it in. Rene wasn't told the notary's explanation. He was, after all, a child, and he did not understand why his brother had died. What evil thing waited an ambush among the leafy turnips? Did it, too, have a name? Realization came to him only gradually, the way one's hands grow slowly numb with cold. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that passage just really, it's just very touching, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book. Well, we have been speaking with Miriam Heron. Miriam, it's been an absolute pleasure your two books, Absolution and A Stone for Bread. It's summer. I really suggest picking these books up. Go to miriamherron.com. That's M-I-R-I-A-M-H-E-R-I-N.com. You have a beautiful website, by the way, uh, Miriam. And uh, I, look for, I look forward to your next book. Well, I, uh, I'm working very hard on, uh, I've got actually two manuscripts. One's kind of out, but I'm trying to finish my medieval French novel, touch it up and send it back to my agent. I think it's a great idea. So thank you so much for joining us. We are out of time. We took the whole hour <laughs> with oh, goodness. Uh, and so the time flies quickly, but it's been such a joy. So thank you so much. I'll be in touch. I just have to finish up the show. Miriam Heron. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Cynthia. I it's, love your show. Thank you so much. It's it's really a joy to do. So we have just a couple of minutes left, and I where I'm not going to be able to give you all the information about the skin cancer that I had spoken about earlier. So I'll do something on another show. But I just want to give you a few prevention guess uh, guidelines, uh, and this is from the Skin Cancer Foundation because it is summer now, and it doesn't matter what color your body is, whether you're purple, green, white, brown, black, everyone gets skin cancer. So the recommended use of sunscreen is an SPF 15 or higher as one important part of a complete sun protection regimen. But sunscreen alone is not enough. So uh, you may want to go to the Skin Cancer Foundation to find out more, but let me give you a few things. During the hours of 10 and 4 p.m., stay in the shade. Do not let yourself burn. Of all things, avoid tanning and UV tanning booths because those can cause very dangerous uh, cancers um, that are deadly, including melanomas, Merkel cell carcinomas, and other carcinomas. Cover up with clothing, including a broad-brimmed hat and UV-blocking sunglasses. Make sure to use a broad-spectrum UVA, UVB sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher every day, no matter whether it's cloudy or rainy or anything. And when you're going to have extended outdoor activity, use a water-resistant broad-spectrum with at least 30. Now, um, you know, above 30 really doesn't matter. People go for 50 and 70, but, you know, I think 30 is really the maximum that there really is. You want to apply an ounce or two tablespoons of sunscreen to your entire body 
30 minutes before going outside. And then here's the kicker. You need to reapply every two hours or immediately after swimming or excessive sweating. And that's something that I usually don't do because I forget about that. Keep newborns out of the sun completely. Sunscreen should be used on babies only over the age of six months. And then examine your skin head to toe every single month. And definitely see your physician every year for a professional skin exam. Because do not be uh, confused or or uh, think that you are not at risk because you have a lot of melanin in your skin or you are of African or Hispanic or Italian descent, everyone can get skin cancer. So please be careful. Um, I just know this way too much. Our bodies make vitamin D with the help of sunlight and it's found in fish oil and it's necessary to prevent rickets and bone disease and uh, keep us healthy but we just don't want too much of that sun. So thank you so much for being great listeners and allowing me into your life every week. Make sure you're tuned to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. We love bringing you people who can make a difference in your life, like our author today, Miriam Heron, and her incredible books. For more information about Star Style Productions, you can go to CynthiaBryan.com. To make a donation to Be The Star You Are charity that brings you this program, please visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. My aim is always to encourage, inspire, inform, amuse, motivate, and entertain you. And I want you to see beyond your physical being and know you are already the star you've dreamed of becoming. Cherish the past, dream of the future, and learn to celebrate every moment of your life And read a book this week, and I really want to suggest A Stone for Bread and Absolution, two books that will transport you to other realms and really make you think, and also make you a better human being, because we need to be kind and we need to be courageous. So until next week, when we celebrate again, remember, love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. My name is Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style thanking you and encouraging you. Be the star you are. Dream, create, inspire, make a difference, make this the best week of your life, and we'll be together next Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Network Empowerment Channel. Reach for the stars. Until next week, thank you. The star you It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit www.starstyleradio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to www.bethestarur.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are. You are.